Welcome to Armed Love, the fourth episode of Armed Love. This is a little Antifada side project about the revolutionary politics and culture of the 60s. Previously in the series, I've had two episodes talking to 60s revolutionaries, Ben Morea and Peter Coyote. And then this will be my second episode talking to more contemporary leftist or revolutionary thinkers about the 60s. And I can't think of a uh, better group to be in conversation with about this than Crime Think. So I have a participant in Crime Think, and Crime Think, of course, has many people, but I this is someone who's been involved since the mid-90s. You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm pleased to be speaking with you today, and uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Great. So... Hopefully everybody knows a little bit about Crime Think, um, but in case you don't, why don't you tell them what Crime Think is? Well, Crime Think is an anarchist collective. We got our start in the early to mid '90s. Our project emerged out of the do-it-yourself network in which people were making zines and records and other things, and it emerged as a sort of a coalition of different individual projects that people were doing. We, People started working together and uh, making posters, zines, releasing records. Eventually, we were publishing this sort of philosophical newspaper called Harbinger. Uh, and then we started publishing books in the year 2000 and, uh, and expanded what we've been doing since then. That's the short version. And... Um, so for me, the, the reason why I thought of having you on to talk about the 60s is um, during the 2000s, which is when I became uh, the most politicized, Crime Think was sort of the political group or the like left revolutionary group. Um, pretty much any punk show I would go to had a table with Crime Think publications and zines. There was a annual Crime Think convergence. That was a, a camp somewhere that usually led to some actions afterwards. Um, and besides that, there, you know, my recollection is there wasn't much of like a, any other left to plug into. I mean, there was obviously Trotskyists and other kinds of Leninists that were involved in campus politics, but no one I knew was very interested in that stuff. And then moving on from the, the anti-glow movement into the anti-war movement, there was this trend of, of black blocks, um, which for me, the first mass demonstration I went to was uh, against the Iraq war. And I saw uh, my, a black block for the first time, and I thought, wow, these are the people who actually want to do something. They don't just want to protest. They don't just want to voice their uh, disapproval or, like, join some political party. They, they actually want to take action now. And so that led me to Crime Think as the group that was theorizing and organizing um, those types of actions. And it, it seemed to me to be, like, a pretty mass phenomenon in the 2000s where a lot of people, people like me, a white middle-class person from the suburbs, decided to sort of throw their lives into the anarchist movement as a result of the writing of Crime Think. And I think that's the first time something like that has happened on a mass scale in the United States since the 1960s. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. I, I think it's true that one of the things that we do is that we try to produce introductory material for people. And so... Uh, th there are several generations of people who associate uh, our work with the period of time when they were becoming politicized. And for some of them, it might be the early aughts. For some of them, it might be, you know, the 2010s uh, or the 1990s, you know. Um, 
My my guess is that we probably reach about as many people now with our projects as we did 15 years ago. But the difference is that, as you say, there there are, is a wider spectrum of people who are involved in radical politics, and so proportionately, it may be that that our influence uh, is is smaller in this wider array of people who are doing different things, which which is great, you know. Um, but for sure, our goal has always been to uh, widen the spectrum of what is thinkable politically and to, to mobilize, especially people who come from, you know, middle America, whatever, whatever, however you interpret that, you know, just ordinary people to start from the, the unsatisfied longings and, and ambitions and desires of, of just random people and, and set out a path from those to some kind of collective participatory project through which we could collectively change the world, you know. Um, in terms of what what crime think is in that, that context, I mean, crime think is both a small number of people trying to do publishing and trying to, you know, do, do organizing in that context and also connected to a much broader anarchist and rebellious uh, milieu, uh, a lot of the good ideas and initiatives of which are are, are channeled through our through our platforms into uh, into collective organizing efforts or publishing efforts. Going back to the the idea of dropout culture, Crime Thing called itself an ex worker collective. So this was a bit of a like a detournement or a commentary on leftist workerism, maybe, um, saying that we're not trying to organize the working class or the masses or something. We are people who are ready right now to try to live our lives in a way where we don't have to work. You know, this um, tradition of the refusal of work within, within anarchism and the post-left even. But it really has a, uh, in terms of what it looked like, I think the, the corollary was to the way no one really knows how many, but tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of youth dropped out in the mid '60s. Well, we were we were absolutely inspired by the things that were happening in the 1960s. Um, in terms of uh, the way that we understood what we were doing, um, you know, we we were most influenced probably by the graffiti in May 1968 in, in Paris that you know the graffiti that said "Never work ever," and we we took that proposal seriously, you know, um, which was insane, which was insane behavior in the mid 1990s. Because uh, we didn't understand how much easier it was in Europe, where there was a sort of a social safety net to undertake an experiment like that. Um, if you want, I'll I'll try to trace the cultural trajectory that that made it possible for us to arrive at that. Um, it might might take a minute here. If we're talking about the sixties, so you know Jerry Rubin is a point of reference for us, right? And if you read Rubin's book, Do It. Uh, he argues that the the part of the 60s rebel culture that he participated in uh, got off the ground thanks to Elvis Presley. Now, he's he's writing out of history all of the black rock and roll musicians that Presley was was ripping off. But if we if we take that the 1950s as our starting point, you know, we're talking about a, a point when all of the rebellions of the earlier part of the 20th century had basically been suppressed and were in this sort of post-war slump for, uh, for visions of a better world, right? When capitalism was basically triumphant and after the war, everybody was just relieved, you know? And this was, this was the time when mass-produced youth culture started to really come into its own as a, as a capitalist 
uh, phenomenon. You know, corporations took youth rebellion and, and colonized it. Colonize is, is not too strong a word, I don't think, speaking of what, you know, Elvis was doing with black culture, you know, and turning youth rebellion into a cash cow that they could, that they could rake in money with. But it also, as a, as a consequence, it produced a generational consciousness for the, the consumers of these products who were able to understand themselves as being uh, a distinct generation from their, their parents in a way that I don't, that it, you know, I mean, that had happened before with the nihilists and Russia in the 1870s and so on, but it was, it was a, a distinct moment when there was this post-war baby boom generation that was listening to different music than their parents and de- developing different values, right? For, for us, we can, we can sort of see ourselves today as having come out of this dialectic between rebellion and commodification that dates back to the 1950s. Um, so I, I'll sort of skip forward to the 1980s. It was very important for me when I was growing up as a, as a young person to position myself against the 1960s. I was, I was young and we were like, oh, well, the 60s, they lost, you know, we, uh, we punks are, are, represent a totally different thing. But, you know, of course, today from, from this vantage point, I can see that, that a lot of the things that we were doing, like the idea of rebelling through, like a, a youth music, youth counterculture was, was very much a 1960s idea that had been sort of passed on and had developed, uh, through the 1960s and through this sort of, when the the mass rebellion around rock music and Woodstock was was completely commodified in the 1970s, you had the emergence of of punk and hip hop as these sort of attempts to carve out a new territory, uh, and specifically uh, a territory that um, rejected mass culture, you know, as a as a way to uh, to reappropriate the process of cultural production, right? To, to sort of shake off the, the ways that capitalist forces had, had, had taken over the, the process of young people's consciousness being produced. This was the sort of the milieu that we came out of as, as punks in the 1980s. And, you know, I, I grew up with a sort of an awareness of these things from the 1960s, like, uh, I don't know, like if you, if you talk about, uh, Abby Hoffman's book, Steal This Book, um, when I was a small child, I, I heard about it from my father, who was a, a Reagan voter, you know? He was a, uh, he was a conservative person, but he, he still thought it was kind of cool that somebody had, had been, uh, bold enough to name a, a book, Steal This Book. And as a small child, I could, I could sort of tell that that was something cool that had happened in the previous generation. You know, each generation tries to rebel against the one that came before it and sort of instinctively looks for territory that hasn't been uh, explored uh, culturally or politically. But, it, but at the same time, I think young people are, are sensitized to the, to the, like, the paths that their parents' generation wanted to take but did not. And so... I probably had this sense as a as a young person that the Abby Hoffman Yippie Jerry Rubin thing had some kind of like magic around it, you know. 
just to jump in, Steal yeah, this please. book chronicles these different ways you can live for free in a political sense as well. So there'd be scams in there, tips on shoplifting, you know, ways to get uh, free uh, phone calls back when there were uh, phone booths everywhere. But there's also stuff about street trashing, which was like the 60s version of a black block, how to face down police and how to live for free, how to set up a commune and stuff like that. So it was like a guide on how to drop out and how to keep fighting the system while you do it. I don't know if anything like that existed afterwards on, on a mass level until Crime Think puts out Recipes for Disaster in the mid-2000s, which is sort of the updated version of that. So maybe an interesting parallel to the, the 60s and today and, and to punk and the, the revolutionary music of the 60s would be, like you said, in the 50s, this emerging youth culture around rock and roll, the mass popularity of, of Elvis um, and the way he sort of scandalized uh, white culture by incorporating black music and, and dance. Uh, but then you also had the beatniks, which also had this uh, incorporation of aesthetics or the ethos of jazz for a more white crowd. And you had the folk scene as well. And these all are pretty subcultural. You know, a lot of people know about it in the mainstream culture, but more and more youth are, are drawn to it until they, they really kind of converge uh, at the same time that you see uh, you know, the civil rights movement becoming more riotous. You know, you, you start seeing urban riots in the mid 60s. And then you, you start seeing rock and roll really take the lead, the, the, the vanguard position of all of this youth counterculture with, with Dylan and, uh, to a lesser extent, the Beatles, but like Rolling Stones had like a revolutionary edge for a moment. And so, uh, I think the moment kind of like this in the United States where all this stuff sorts like, kind of reach a, a political singularity is uh, Seattle um, in 1999. This is when I think, you know, I barely uh, remember it. I was pretty young, but this is when I think anarchism really emerged in the stage in the U.S. as like a serious political alternative where people were actually gathering around anarchist ideas and tactics to fight this global order that political Gen Xers bemoaned uh, with like things like ad busters and no logo and uh, Noam Chomsky and that kind of thing. And the, the sort of younger Gen Xers now were uh, a lot of them coming from the punk scene are like emerging, like ready to actually fight it. And that's kind of seemed like a, a turning point. I think there's something to that. You know, the, the counterculture in the late 1960s had been developing arguably since the 1940s, right? Uh, you know, if you, if you trace back what the, you know, the origins of the whole beatnik thing and, you know, what Allen Ginsberg was doing as a young person or whatever, when he was still, what was he, like a, he was a banker, right? Yeah, I think he was a banker who, who dropped out, in fact. Um, I can, I can look that up, but it, it was one of those things. It, it was, uh, Jerry Rubin ended up as a stockbroker, tragically, but, uh, but I think Ginsberg began as a, as a banker. But in any case, there was this long trajectory of, of a few people sort of, living outside of the uh, social norms, experimenting with other ways of life, developing uh, models and frameworks that, that suddenly a whole generation of people wanted to experiment with. And similarly, you know, you're talking about uh, November 30th, 1999, when uh, demonstrators organizing according to a decentralized spokes council model with affinity groups shut down and, and prevented from happening the the summit of the World Trade Organization in Seattle, Washington. You know, that was a 
that was a moment. It was a it was a watershed moment, and it didn't come out of nowhere. The the black block tactics that you know really only a hundred people were experimenting with that day um, were had been developed for two and a half decades or more in in Europe and South America. You know they were, and I guess in in Japan also with the Zynga Kroen. Um, they were, uh, they were, it was the, the arrival on the world stage of, of these different models that had been developed over a long period of time in indigenous struggles in, in Chiapas, for example, in, uh, ecological struggles. Um, but it, it's true, absolutely, that, uh, that a lot of the key participants in the, events of November 30th, 1999, you know, were there wearing the shirts for their favorite punk bands. You know, they were there coming out of uh, a counterculture, which was a, a model that had been developed in the 1950s and 1960s, where you politicize people not through what, uh, through organizing in the workplace, you politicize people through um, cultural organizing. Basically, what happens with people in people's leisure time with the cultural consumption they're engaging in, you know, and in in one of our books, uh, it's called Work. We we make the argument that you can look at at two phases, or you could say modes of re- rebellion. You know, one where people are organizing, like the like the the so-called First International, the International Workmen's Association, the in the 1860s, you know, they're organizing on the basis of people's role in capitalism, organizing on the basis of their workplaces. And that, you know, that, uh, that contributed to a model that sort of hit a plateau once the unions were all part of the functioning of the, of the, of the class system, you know, starting in the early 20th century. And as a result, the new generations started to organize around the things that they were, around the music they were listening to, around the, the consumption they were engaging in, really, right? And that's uh, the model that arguably produced these upheavals in the 1960s and, and in the 1990s. Now, I would, I would make the case that, that both of those models have, have probably uh, hit plateaus at this point. That's the, that's the thing I feel like I've seen in the course of my lifetime is that participatory cultural consumption, thanks to the Internet and, you know, specifically Internet 2.0, has been integrated into the functioning of the capitalist economy as well. So it's, it's much more difficult now just by, by making music or making sort of different cultural ways that people can identify or come together that will inher- inherently demonstrate another way of being. Go ahead. I mentioned evasion before and the mid-2000s where anarchism became really connected with people who were more or less by choice, train hopping, hitchhiking, dumpster diving, squatting, and trying to build like a network or, you know, a, a life around those activities of, of living for free uh, or as cheaply as possible. The main political critique of that would be the question of privilege. But then I think around 2008, 2009, there's a major shift in anarchism in the United States, which corresponds with the financial crisis. A lot of those people start reading Marx, start thinking more seriously about economics, 
Um, and this sort of transitions, in my mind, into Occupy, into initially university occupations at the new school, the UC system, um, other places around the country, uh, and then Occupy Wall Street, which is using a lot of the same uh, aesthetics and slogans of those school occupations. Do you think that dropout culture sort of uh, wore itself out, or you mentioned it had a like there's these plateaus before? Do you think there was a recognition of of like the limits of of that, those kind of politics? Well, the the work that we were doing in the early aughts, honestly, I, for me, the dropout, the focus on dropout culture is more from the crime thing stuff from the turn of the century than it is from the, the 2000s. Um, I think it probably took some years to filter out to reach other people, you know? Um, but the, but I, we would never have been able to uh, reach tens or hundreds of thousands of people if we had just been promoting dropout culture. The, the main thing that we were trying to do was to address people wherever they are in, in the economy, wherever they are in the, in the power structure and, and speak to their, uh, suppressed desires and their disappointments and, and, and address people about the, the proposal that all together we could do something different. Now, one aspect of the subculture that, that grew not just out of what we were doing, but out of, out of the punk scene at that time was the sort of, dropout culture in which people, you know, like in the 1960s, uh, set up these sort of alternative lifestyles in a, in a kind of a youth-oriented, unsustainable way in order to be able to put a lot of their time and energy towards um, organizing these political projects. I mean, some people didn't do that, but the, for me, the, the reason to do it was to be able to organize the political projects that would demonstrate another way of life, whether that's, you know, food not bombs or something else like that. Um, and so the, you know, really to understand the, the, the anarchism of the early aughts, we have to see it both as on the one side, having this sort of subculture of organizers who were scamming to get by the same way that, uh, you know, Abby Hoffman and other people did in the, in the 1960s. And then at the same time, this effort to address a much broader mass of people about about the possibility for social change now the uh and and one more thing actually about the about the kind of organizing that was happening then was that you know the early aughts were a period of capitalist triumphalism you know there was that essay that came out uh the end of history um that's you may you may at least be familiar with it from a, a line in a rage against the machine song you know there's this capitalist triumphalism that we had reached the end of history and everything was just going to get more and more democratic and more and more le- neoliberal forever, you know? And so the, the anarchists from that era who rejected that, I, I would count myself as being from one generation prior to that, but for sure the, the people who got into anarchism at that point were people who were in many cases motivated by the same thing that you s- said was motivating the Jerry Rubin demographic from the 1960s, people who were saying, even with all these opportunities, in the capitalist economy, I'm not satisfied. None of them are fulfilling. None of them are, are truly meaningful. You know, I, I actually want something else. Now, what we start to see, uh, we, we start to see a shift around 2007, 2008 with the economic recession that hits then. And the, and the, the shift is that, um, people, 
more and more people start to have a harder and harder time making ends meet, right? Uh, and as a consequence of this, people from a bunch of different demographics that had not necessarily been interested in organizing politically are, are looking to get involved in, in radical politics or are, are interested in them. But of course, they don't just take up the radical politics that existed before. They, they bring their own concerns and their own expectations and their own needs with them. So you were talking about the, the student movement. There was a, a new generation of student organizing that, that kicked off, I would say, with the occupation of the new school in, in New York City in December 2008. That's what I would date it from. You know, before that, the student I would say to you, but I'm a little bit biased. Um, I mean, because the stuff in, in Berkeley and the West Coast was 2009. Before that, there was student organizing, but it was more like anti-sweatshops organizing, kind of so-called anti-globalization era organizing against capitalist misdeeds that were happening across the planet somewhere else, you know. And then suddenly students were looking down the barrel of having having no future. You know, they're like, we're going to graduate having racked up a tremendous amount of debt and there'll be no place for us in the world. And so, you know, the students started to have, you know, arguably to have somewhat different class interests, right? Um, but this also uh, resulted in sort of a new politics, new political inclinations among radicals because... You know, you have all these grad students who are suddenly in radical movements who were not, you know, taking action in them before. And they show up and they, they wanted a radicalism with more citations. You know, they wanted a, a radicalism where they they had more markers of legitimacy than just having like patches on their pants or something. You know, because, I mean, if you think about it, the uh, punk for all of its shortcomings, it was actually more working class than the sort of grad student student movement that appeared in, in 2008, 2009. Um, these, you know, these grad students uh, looked around, they're like, well, who has the most citations? What's the most legitimized uh, academic, um, uh, you know, legacy that we can tap into to, to, to feel like what we're saying is important. And that, that was Marxism. All right. Well, you do know? you have any proof of that? Any statistics? Well, I'm I, just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's a funny joke. No, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. Um, yeah. You know, obviously, like working class people, people from different backgrounds, go into grad school, but right. uh, you know, for the most part, the culture there and like where you end up after the academy is not back amongst the working class, unless you sort of choose to do it. To choose to well, do nowadays, that. yeah. I mean, nowadays, grad students are getting spit out and, and working in cafes. Again, also, but but some of them are working in those cafes still with this sort of academic notion of of what has legitimacy or value, you know. And from from my perspective, as somebody who never participated in upper academia, um, some of the stuff where you know the the words have to be really complicated and you know is just is structurally exclusive, which is not to say that there's no value to the ideas that come out of there. And, that, and there's definitely value to, to thinking with more people and, and thinking broadly with more people who are situated in more different parts of society. In, in general, I would say that radical movements have improved as a consequence of more and more people participating. But um, 
but the the reemergence of Marxism as a as a powerful current in North American radicalism, uh, yeah, I I think that that was the result of grad students looking for a radical tradition, you know, that they could draw on it. And of, of course, it was the one that had been the official state religion of half the populated surface of the earth for half of the 20th century. And, and that brought in a more middle-class value system. But at the same time, I think Marxism was necessary to understand what was going on in the way the radical cultures of the, of the aughts transitioned into the 2010s. Like, for example, I showed up in New York around 2005, 2006, you know, really excited from reading Crime Think. And it's like, all right, time to start a squat and talk to squatters and be like, hey, bad news. Uh, it's pretty much over. Like, you can't do it now. And right. economically, it was much harder because the property values had gotten so high that the squatters movement that could exist only a few years before could no longer exist because even a very bad piece of property that no one was going to be living in for quite a long time was worth enough to hire some kind of security for it or to go to court to evict you or, or whatnot. So it was just an economic change uh, that had to be reckoned with. And I think the, the broader left had to go through that process during the financial crisis of understanding like what was motivating people to struggle and fight was no longer going to be the same sort of issues that made up the, the, the anti-globalization movement, but was beginning to move more towards people's everyday lives and where they live. And o Occupy Wall Street was like one incarnation of that. But then I think largely discontinuous of that leftward tradition, you saw what I think dominates struggle today, which is Black Lives Matter, the indigenous struggle as represented mainly by Standing Rock, and then the George Floyd uprising, which, you know, these are not waves of struggle that, you know, came from directly from Occupy or Anti-Globe or anything like that. But they, they look more like what inspired the revolutionaries of the 60s, which is um, mainly black liberation, uh, but then also other kinds of, uh, you know, direct struggles by people colonized or, or otherwise, you know, structurally outside of the, the hegemonic logic instead of people who were, you know, within it and dissatisfied. Right. First, I, I agree with you that it became it became necessary to arrive at a more robust economic analysis. You know, as as more and more people started to be in in situations, you know, even middle class people were not were not rebelling against a land of plenty. They were uh, facing economic pressure and trying to figure out how to how to survive those, what, what to do together. And, and you're right also that the continuous uh, rise of real estate values, basically as the global investor class uses real estate as a, as a, a placeholder for, you know, for uh, rising, for, for wealth in like this rising inequality. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to have, to, to use the model that, that I was politicized in where you have social centers and community, community spaces. Um, in terms of the trajectory from uh, from Occupy through the uprisings in, in Ferguson and, and Baltimore uh, and, and Minneapolis up to, up to today, I, I see these actually as being part of a, a continuous revolutionary process that you know that has involved more and more different demographics, for sure. But you know, 
the the thing is that um, as things get more volatile in the United States and and life gets more difficult for more and more people, understandably, more and more different demographics are mobilizing in more confrontational ways, right? And you know, just as the predominantly white ecological movements two decades ago had these debates about violence versus nonviolence, those same debates have been taking place all this time in, in a lot of other communities, and all of these different communities have been converging in these bigger and bigger struggles. So, you know, we participated in Occupy, and near the end of Occupy, I, we we wrote, arguing against these people who said that Occupy had been undermined by violence, you know, and we, we were arguing that in order for the Occupy movement to go further, above all, we would have needed the participation of more, more black and Latino, Latina people, you know, more poor people. Um, and specifically that that examples like Occupy Oakland, which was much more confrontational and much more diverse and inclusive, were were the way forward. You know, I, one of us uh, crime think people debated Chris Hedges, who is this sort of liberal author who was very angry about what he ca- he called the black block the cancer in Occupy, and he said that you know that uh, the people who were using radical tactics or confrontational tactics in Occupy were preventing the social movement from spreading. And we knew that it was that it was the opposite way around, that the blockades and the freeway occupations that characterized the high point of Occupy Oakland were, were the future for social movements going forward, you know. And already at that time, anarchists in our networks uh, were already participating in in pushing back against police murders, for example, the, the murder of Oscar Grant at the the very beginning of 2009 in, in the Bay Area. Um, you know, anarchists in St. Louis were some of the only people from outside of Ferguson on the first night of the rebellion uh, there after the police murdered Michael Brown. And, you know, after the uprising in Baltimore the next year, which, you know, which was suppressed immediately by the mobilization of the National Guard, again, with, you know, we, we were discussing this stuff as participants in Crime Think, and we published something saying uh, that this movement against police and white supremacy, the movement that is associated with uh, the, the slogan Black Lives Matter, it has reached a sort of a plateau or an impasse until people are able to revolt in, in every city at once, rather than just in one city. And that was what we saw after the murder in Minneapolis. So the uh, for, for me, this... This whole trajectory, I I can trace it, you know, back to, you know, I mean, depending on where you want to start, you could start in the 1960s, we could start in the 1990s. Uh, if we if we start at the anti-globalization movement, from from one phase of the struggle to the next, you can you can see those who aim to transform the world and create a society without oppression, without hierarchy, uh, hitting a wall, and then. By connecting with more people, by innovating in our in our tactics, we are we have been able to continue to expand the the scope of the movement. And unfortunately, as as I think that you discussed in your conversation with Ben Morea, the the effect of that is that there is a corresponding mobilization from the reactionaries and increasing violence on all sides um, as the 
as the future of our species comes into, into question with ecological and economic crises. But um, unfortunately, there's fortunately or unfortunately, there's no way to pause history. We just have to have to go forward into the fight together. Try to connect with more people who are impacted, perhaps impacted worse than us by by borders, by capitalist immiseration, and uh, and keep innovating ways that, that we can open up spaces of freedom, which may not be squats. They might be, uh, you know, a, a freeway that's occupied during a movement or, or a space that we routinely take over to host a mutual aid program, you know. Um, but we need to, we need to keep reaching out to people, keep working together to create these spaces. And that's, that's the, the process in which we see hope for our future. And that, and the, the participants in our collective are still, are invested in this as, as the, you know, as the main thing that we are trying to do with our lives. Not, we're not trying to, you know, create a space in which we can raise a family in a, you know, sort of a comfortable suburban home or something. That, that dream is increasingly unavailable to people for good or for ill. The dream that is, it's becoming more and more realistic. The only dream that, that, that could come true is the dream of collectivity. Right. And I'm with you on the point that when I see something like Ferguson or George Floyd uprising, I understand that whatever my conception of freedom is can only be won through the victory of black struggle, through black struggle expanding on its own terms. And I think most white leftists understand that now. And in the 60s as well, like this was basically where the new left came from is witnessing the civil rights struggle, understanding the revolutionary implication of even the nonviolent origins of it, just the, the demand for equality is in itself uh, a revolutionary one in a white supremacist society. So I think like, you know, we're at the same place today, but there's still this fundamental divide between the, the people who are really at the core of, of black struggle and uh, the more radical left, which tends to be pretty white. So when we're talking about the continuity and discontinuity, they're certainly not totally separate. But that said, you know, what I saw of the uprising did not have much influence from any left that, uh, you know, it's, it, it just wasn't, it wasn't coming from the political ideas of the left. For, for me, the, um, the uprising in 2020, it, it's just, you, it's easy for me to see it as, as a moment in a trajectory that if you go back further, you get to Baltimore, you go back further, you get to Ferguson, you go back further, you get to, all of these uprisings, like the one in response to the murder of Oscar Grant, that, that weren't able to last for more than a day. The one in Ferguson was the one that, that lasted longer than that, you know? But, but, um, I mean, and these are all, all of these uprisings occurred because of the initiative and, and the courage, really the selfless courage and, and the, the heartbreak of the, of the black communities that were affected. Um, but, but there's also, you know, there's there's some interesting questions about what the role of people from outside those communities is, and and for example, the uprisings. Basically, basically nothing happened between uh, Trump's election and and the uprising in Minneapolis in May 2020. Nothing on the same scale. My point about the uh, about the lapse. In, in street actions in response to police murders, specifically of, of black people, 
in the earlier part of the Trump era is that everyone has a responsibility to to play a, at least a supporting role in in those uprisings, you know, to to back people who are on the immediate receiving end of police violence and to make sure that they are not on their own when they're trying to respond to it. And so, you know, anti, anti-fascism is, like it or not, is another essential thing for us to be organizing around. But, but I, I just can't see, um, I just can't see any of these movements as being discontinuous or, or isolated because they, they all are only possible because of the confluence of people who are there because of their politics, be they, be they, you know, black, white, or, or any other ethnicity and people who are there because of the pressures that they're subjected to in their day-to-day lives and their position in patriarchy, white supremacy and capitalism. Uh, I definitely agree with you that like when these things popped off, the people who recognized them for what they were quickest were tended to be anarchists or, or anarchist type people, people who's, you know, they have their politics, they have their theory, but also like they understand what matters is like what goes on in the streets. And then you do tend to have like more academic and more Marxist people being like very cautious or even concerned at first before trying to like make some sense of it later on. So I think anarchism specifically has been this, uh, you know, uh, continuous uh, uh, force of, you know, trying to contribute or, you know, um, both trying to learn and maybe also having some things to teach from, you know, having so much experience in different kinds of, of struggles. I would just say we have to be there with each other, learning from each other in in dialogue with people. Like you say, learning learning from the people who are in the most targeted situations, you know, and, and just being there. Like that 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 we can't talk about this stuff from a distance. We we won't understand it unless we're in direct dialogue with the with the most impacted when, when we are not the most impacted some of us are some of us anarchists are absolutely on the on the receiving end of you know every every form of white supremacist and patriarchal violence and i think uh yeah part of that is is anarchists understood one of the lessons of the 60s which was sort of memory hold which was that you know nonviolence only got people so far um that appealing to power had you know, won some victories, but also had some, in the end, very major limitations. And the riots that uh, defined the latter half of the decade were justified. And this is something I think a lot of the left recognize the potency of that and even believe that revolution was right around the corner as a result of the emergence of these riots. It's the anarchists who kind of kept that history, not in the form of something like the Weather Underground, but in the form of at cer- a certain point, people are going to get pissed off enough to actually get together and fight. And that's the sort of moments that we are always expecting. Well, the anarchist politic around this, from my perspective, is is not that we're in favor of violent tactics. I, I think the anarchist proposal is that what is important about an action is not whether it is violent or not, but but how it distributes power. And that, that was that's the reason that anarchists uh, participated in, in black bloc tactics during the World Trade Organization protests in 1999 to demonstrate a way of distributing power differently in the streets. Uh, but it's also the reason that anarchists have been critical of the model represented by, you know, the weather underground 
in the 1970s. Um, it was, you know, not that the tactics they were employing were necessarily wrong, but that um, organizing a, a militant cadre vanguard w- was not the best way to get the most return on the agency of everybody who's affected by these issues. I want to ask something about the crime fit convergences. We might be lacking something where we like get people together in that same way now. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know that the crime fit convergences need to be the, the central example for that. You know, I mean, lots of groups had convergences, uh, you know, the earth first rendezvous being the most, the most obvious example of this. And I do feel like we're lacking something, but it's also, it's also a question how we would create a, uh, a question that maybe is beyond the scope of what we can do in this discussion, how we would create a, uh, an environment that was resistant enough to toxicity that everybody could benefit from being together in that way. Absolutely. But where I want to go with that is I, uh, there was like um, a, a tweet that I saw that went uh, kind of viral this weekend of uh, a DSA type person um, quoting a, uh, a Vice documentary about like a Nazi music festival in Ukraine. And, uh-huh. and this person said, look at these festivals. There's hundreds of these Nazis getting together and having a really good time. And we don't have anything like that. When we get together, it is not fun. And, you know, he's, he's talking specifically about DSA. It's not like there are no leftists who have fun. Like I wanted to reply and say, go to a punk show or, or something like that. Um, yeah. But... I think that's sort of true that the left today doesn't have culture at its at its heart where there's no singular thing that everybody just loves to do and uh, and and to be around um like in the 60s what they tried to do with the bean which was like a initially it was an attempt by radicals and uh more countercultural hippie types to like get the the hippies and the political people together and the same thing happened in New York. And in fact, a couple of the BNs turned somewhat riotous, like there's one at Grand Central Station. Yeah, Henry returns. And so, yeah, we don't really have like, uh, so like people sort of cringe at like the, all the, the fun, uh, like free culture and free festival aspects of the 60s. Some people actually think that stuff was like a CIA operation, like the Grateful Dead was a way of diverting the counterculture away from its like militant Marxist uh, intentions. Well, you know, when there's a distinction between uh, relaxing or recreation on the one side and then political work that, that brings us closer to our objectives on the other, we've already lost. This is an argument that reached me from the 1960s, but that I think is is valid because people are more and more exhausted already. People are, you know, and, and, and people don't necessarily have the energy to do something that isn't going to fulfill their needs in addition to all of the needs that they have just arising around the, you know, the vicissitudes of surviving under capitalism, right? So you you need to be providing for the needs that people have in the process of of political organizing. This is the reason that, you know, in the mid-1990s, we published something that, that people still circulate, you know, people who were not born when it was written, still circulate this uh, and that to me is a little cringy now but uh, you know it says you you can't have boring politics not because everything has to be fun and, and in a superficial way but because uh in order to involve a lot of people in what you're doing you, you need to be offering them something that makes their lives better you know immediately and in the long term 
because many people's lives are, are so difficult and so grueling that, you know, they, they don't have time to, to invest in something that, that may or may not pay off later, but that is, is not demonstrating its, its virtue up front. For me, the, the thing that we learned from the 1960s from our predecessors was that, that everything we do should, um, should speak to people on an emotional level as well as a, a rational level. It should be joyous as, as well as transformative. You know, the, if you're, if you read Friedrich Nietzsche, you need the Apollonian as well as the Dionysian. You know, and, and I think that is something that we've, we've tried to incorporate into the Crime Think projects that they should express joyousness, um, they should be playful and interesting as, as well as well thought out and, uh, strategic. You know, sometimes we err too much on one side. So much we, sometimes we err too much on the other, but, but, uh, but I, I would encourage others, um, to, to think seriously about how to incorporate, uh, things that speak to people on an emotional level as well as on a rational level. I think a good way of seeing how crime think has maintained itself is just, you know, read some of your work, you know, the current work or at any point, it's very clear. It's aimed at being understood. Uh, and this is something that crime think has in common with, like, if you check out a Black Panther newspaper, it's incredibly well written, you know, very exciting and fun to read. It has a sense of humor and very clear. You know, it's, it talks, uh, it's not just talking to leftists. It's not just talking to, uh, students. Um, and then, right. you know, you also see that in, in the work of a lot of the more anarchist or ultra left groups in the sixties, like the situationists. Well, the situations get pretty difficult, but, uh, uh, definitely the mother for French people, that stuff is fun. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was juvenile for the French. Um, right. But exactly. yeah, the, the U S analog would probably be the motherfuckers and the diggers that, you know, were very poetic and, uh, adventurous with their writing, you know, taking after, the beatniks, um, and, and something that was, uh, you know, a lot more fun to read than a, a Trotskyist newspaper. And, uh, because of that, you know, I was exposed, uh, at a pretty young age to a lot of the things that are really mainstream now, but, um, I wouldn't have been exposed to it probably any other way, you know, stuff like veganism, although that, you know, that comes more from the hardcore scene or that's where I learned about it. Um, but queer and trans struggle, the first time I ever heard about trans people was from a crime think scene in the mid 2000s. Cool. Anti-fascism, black bloc, obviously. But it's interesting now that a lot of these things that, that crime think was sort of letting large amounts of people know about are now really mainstream. And, you know, this gets into what you're talking about at the beginning about this constant struggle between uh, radicalism and, and co-optation. So when you see, for example, veganism become super successful or like the way pride parades have become like these are like the biggest events of the year in some cities um right. do you see that as 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 purely being co-optation or do you see that as in some ways a sign of success well if you succeed you'll be co-opted because it's the the response um intentionally or or just inevitably from the rest of society from the other political currents in society. Uh, you know, when the Green Scare was taking place in 2005, and, uh, and several of our comrades were, were 
you know, threatened or arrested. Uh, you know, one of them was facing the threat of life plus 300 years in prison. Um, a friend of mine, another person who was, who was in that context said his analysis of the situation, he said the, the state practices an armed criticism on our movements. You know, they, they show us where we're weak. They show us where we left vulnerabilities in our, in our organizing. Um, when they attack us, that you can understand that as a, as a criticism by which we might improve. And similar, similarly, you know, the, the process of co-optation, what the situation is called recuperation, is constantly taking place, showing us everything that can be appropriated from our movements without actually threatening capitalism. Everything that they can use that we produce that doesn't threaten the fundamental hierarchies that, uh, that perpetuate the, the order that we live under. And for us, this is a, this is a good thing because it enables us to constantly refine our strategies, to constantly reorient and, and revise our proposals to continue to, to try to aim for the heart of, of the enemy. You know, and, and this is a reason not to water down our demands. You know, we try to, in our projects through Crime Think, we try to address a broad audience. We try to speak to people wherever they're at, but we don't try to compromise our basic values to appeal to people because we know that, uh, that wherever we succeed, everything that doesn't threaten the, the fundamental, um, aspects of the oppressive order that we live under will be taken from us and used against us. So, uh, so we have to continuously be trying to figure out how to make our proposals in such a way that they can't be uh, appropriated and used as weapons against us, not only by the state and the corporations, but also uh, every innovation that we come up with now will also be immediately taken up by the far right. And, and we see that they don't have very many ideas of their own, but they're just a few years behind us trying to do everything that we've, that we've done. So again, it's a, it's a reason when we're innovating tactics, when we're discussing discourse, when we're uh, refining our strategies to be thinking about how to do things that, that uh, by, you know, that by, um, that, that essentially, you know, target the, the fundamentals of the, of the system that we are fighting against. But there's also a risk in cooptation when you don't succeed because you know it's it's off, it's often uh this apocryphal story of the 60s like uh what happened to to Jerry Rubin or or certain members of the Black Panther party or these were revolutionaries and then look what happened to them when they just got a little bit older they they realized how the world really works and that's of course a way that's always been used to discredit youth movements or young people in general so what's always the the risk is that when you have like a, a particularly vital political project, it attracts a lot of like really smart people with a lot of ingenuity, aesthetically, politically, tactically, whatever. You end up with like a very dynamic group of people. And when that group hits its limits, a lot of those people will just move on to some other form of success because they, they're still smart people. They just have become disillusioned or given up on, on the revolutionary project. I imagine a lot of people who pass through Crime thing circles are very successful today in in like a cultural or or economic senses. Well, well, there's a few cases of that, but I I also think that you know 
We live in a society in which a disproportionate amount of influence on the structures of our relationships uh, is is exerted by programmers. You know, like a, a small class, a small subset of people, uh, computer programmers, have a, a tremendous, a tremendously disproportionate amount of, of leverage on the, how we can communicate, what we can conceive of, whether we're able to be. Uh, confidential in our communications. Um, and in that regard, you know, if, if some people have passed through, uh, like crime think organizing and gone on to be like tech workers, but that are, are motivated to work on, uh, encryption projects, you know, that, that, uh, protect everybody. Um, and, and to do that rather than doing something else they could get paid 10 times as much money for, that's worthwhile. That's, that's absolutely part of our mission statement. And that's, that's a good thing. You know, that's, that's, that's one thing I wanted to say about in response to what you said. And then the other thing is, you know, uh, Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, you know, they were famous, uh, for what they were doing in the late 1960s. Let me, let me look up here when, when Abby Hoffman was, when Abby killed himself, 1989, and Jerry Rubin had already become a stockbroker and uh, and gotten killed by a car before then. So, but but you know, from 1969 to 1989, that's 20 years. You know, we are already with this collective. We are already three decades into into what we're doing. So, in in some regards, we've been able to sustain. Uh, our experiments over a much longer period of time than, you know, than the, the people from the 1960s that we've been talking about were at least able to sustain their, their specific groups, you know, um, and, or even the situationists. We have kept the scale of the things that we're doing, uh, you know, proportionate to, to our goals and the, and the things that we th- think we can do with, with the power and leverage, you know, like, like the Shaq campaign or, or some, some other activist campaigns that, that really became famous and then were destroyed, you know. I think there's something to be said for make sure that the kind of publicity you receive is the specific kind that can enable you to achieve your goals and then try to avoid all the other stuff. There's, there's a lot of lessons we can take from the 1960s about sustainability, about, uh, you know, consistency and appropriate scale. Um, and the, and the idea, as I was saying before about anonymity, the idea is not to make one person or one group famous. The idea is to distribute as far and wide as possible the skills and the relationship to one's own agency that's necessary to create a broad movement in which a lot of people can take action and, and nobody can be like taken out in, in a way that, that, that incapacitates the movement as a whole. You know, that's, that, that's one of the things that I, I, I would say we can, we can take from this. So it's, it's not a, uh, it's not a race. It's not a long distance race. It's a, you know, it's more a question of understanding, um, understanding ourselves as being in it for a lifelong struggle, not expecting that in one year or the next year we're, we're going to, you know, achieve some breakthrough in which like water turns into wine and, and the, the world is transfigured, you know, but, but understanding ourselves as part of a lifelong struggle in which each of us has a responsibility working with each other to figure out how we can continue to contribute to it and participate in it.
that's one of the things that is so inspiring for me to, about hearing Ben Morea speak on your podcast, that he still cares about these things. He still has really sharp politics. He's still invested in this stuff. He's now decades deep into a lifelong project of, of contributing to and participating in transformative social struggle. And that's what we can all aspire to do. Yeah. And, uh, uh, absolutely. But at the same time, I think he, he sort of feels like he's one of the last ones. <laughs> like, I, I, I think that he uh, he felt the same way a lot of the revolutionaries did in the late 60s, which was that this revolutionary moment's passing and it's not going to be pretty afterwards. And a lot of people write about that in their memoirs of the 60s. Like they, they felt it in even 67 that this was coming. I always think about this line uh, that Ed Sanders, who was he was in the Fugs and and associated with oh. the uh, the Yippies and was part of the Pentagon levitation, he said this on William Buckley's show Firing Line. He said like what's probably going to happen is not a revolution because he was never a revolutionary; he was a social democrat. But that all of the people from the counterculture were going to go on to become what he called the command generation. So the people who were you know managers and bureaucrats and politicians and that sort of thing. And they would be a, a more ethical and more compassionate and more hip command generation. And they would legalize marijuana and everybody would read Ginsburg and, and that sort of thing. And that's not the revolution that he might want, but that's a, he saw that as like a good enough outcome. And he was, you know, he was talking to William F. Buckley's audience. So maybe he was watering things down a little bit. But what I'm hearing you say is that that's not our goal. Our goal isn't just to make the world a little bit better and kinder. Our goal is to sustain these spaces where people can come together with a lot of different kinds of people and organize for revolution still, right? Yes. Yes, absolutely. You know, and I mean, I also, uh, for me, it was in 2002, I went through this heartbreaking period of time where, you know, during the so-called anti-globalization movement at the turn of the century, we all thought the world was about to change. Because before that, we had just been isolated punks and shoplifters. And suddenly, with a 100,000 of us, we were driving back the police in the nation, in, you know, in the world's capitals, right? In the capitals of the world's countries. And and then the, the tide went back out, and we were just there on the shore, like uh, looking at, you know, jail time or whatever. And yeah, that was that was heartbreaking and difficult. In the same way, maybe on a smaller scale, that I imagine that it was very difficult in 1970, 1971, 1972 for, um, you know, graduates of the, of the 1960s era. But, but the thing is, if we're in a lifelong struggle, there'll be multiple opportunities to put everything on the line, go toe-to-toe with the defenders of the prevailing order, you know, uh, win some things, get defeated in other ways, learn from... Our, our mistakes, um, reconnect with each other or with whoever else is, is still interested in doing this and, and go out there and, and do it again, you know, and, uh, and, and from one decade to the next. We, we published something after the Occupy Movement, a, a series of reflections called After the Crest, um, which is about what you can do when you're in the waning phase of a social movement, because we spend most of our lives in the waning phases of social movements when, when things that, uh, that burst onto the scene are sort of in the process of dying out. And, and that's a, that's a strategic question, how we use that time, you know, but I, I would, I, I would like to counter the image that you, that you referred to a minute ago of the sort of washed up, defeated, 
youth rebels by, by saying it's possible for us to spend our lives in these struggles. You know, many of the anarchists and, and artists from the 19th and early 20th centuries, like, uh, it did, did that. And, um, and it's hard to, to live through the disappointments and the tragedies that, that can ensue and the, the hard consequences of laying it all on the line. But it's also the, the, the joy of getting to participate in the struggle is, if we're doing it, if we're doing it right, <laughs> is so rewarding that it's worth it. Yeah, I mean, I can't help but think of the Defend the Forest struggle in Atlanta that's been going on for over a year now. But uh, they had a week of action in July. You know, they want people to come and, like, protest the the people who are trying to destroy this forest in Atlanta. Um, so there was a, obviously a political and action-oriented element of it. But there's also a really impressive music festival, including punk and hip-hop, EDM and pop, you know, just music that, like, Atlanta kids enjoy and so it was a really fun place to be by all accounts while at the same time it was like really intense struggle going on right at the periphery and obviously that kind of struggle is not going to be for everybody but definitely uh, you learn a lot more uh, from being there than you do from being uh, from listening to a podcast or arguing on twitter yeah absolutely and and the you know the movement in atlanta is a good example of all the things we've been talking about in this conversation about movements that combine cultural uh, forms and, and resistance tactics, movements that strategically weave together people's emotional needs and their, their daily lives and, and forms of contestation that can open up spaces in which we can discover what our relationships could be on different terms. It's just on our minds. Obviously, there's yeah. a million things going on. Okay. Last question. Um, maybe the hardest one, but I, I think you're going to knock it out of the park. Um, we both agreed just a second ago, I think that revolution is the goal or uh, at least a goal. It's desirable at least, but is it possible? I think this is a, a really big problem that, you know, revolutionaries should ask themselves, but also is a problem for convincing other people that, revolutionary politics are worthwhile, which is, is it possible? And what do you think it would look like? Hmm. Well, first of all, um, drawing on a long-standing anarchist engagement with this question, we always say revolution is necessary but not sufficient to bring about the changes that we want in the world. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You know, We're not just talking about uh, something as simple and naive as replacing the government with a good government that would fix all of our problems for us. You know, we're talking about overhauling all of our relations in a, in a continuous process of experimentation, you know, with the, with the long-term goal being to, uh, abolish all the different mechanisms that impose power disparities between us. You know, that's, that's a long-term undertaking. So, is revolution possible? Uh, yes, you know, we've seen revolutions in the, in the course of our, our lives. You know, in, if we go back just a few years, there was a, a wave of revolutions in, in Tunisia and Egypt, uh, elsewhere around North Africa, um, 
there there have been revolutionary struggles since then that uh, that replaced one government with another. Uh, there have been cultural revolutions in which you know I mean in the course of my lifetime it became possible to to speak about you know people being trans and 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 to ask people to refer to you by a different pronoun and and for that to be widely understood you know there have been all sorts of revolutionary transformations um none of these have in and of themselves been sufficient to establish an anarchist utopia on the earth but but they're all moments in a long-term process you know the the thing i, I want to say to people who you know who believe that revolution is not possible um 20 years ago when you had capitalist triumphalism and there were people saying, well, everything is just going to be like this forever. We're at the end of history. You know, uh, you had to kind of make an argument that, that change was possible and desirable. I think today everybody will agree change is desirable. Um, it's hard to imagine positive change because things just keep getting worse and worse in so many different ways. Um, but the very precarity of our situation as a, as a global society shows that there are going to be dramatic changes, you know, in the, in the foreseeable future as uh, climate crisis hits, as economic crises intensify, you know, and, and as those things propel more and more governments into, into war and, and repression of their own populations, it's going to be, it's inevitable that the things that are familiar to us right now are going to come to an end. And so, uh, even if you don't believe that um, that it's likely that there will be good outcomes to any of these changes, that's just more reason for you to, to join us in the front lines of these of these struggles. Because you won't even be able to see what's possible unless you're on the ground when when things are going down, and and you're able to you know, participate with the people who are most impacted in, in responding. We, we have to do that. And, and the consequences will be worse and worse for more and more people if we don't, you know, um, already, you know, already now years ago, people were showing up here where I live as, as refugees from, you know, not just other parts of the world, but, uh, from parts of the United States that have been hit by, by hurricanes and by, by forest fires, you know, that, that process is going to intensify. Um, the, the global system that we live under is unsustainable and that's becoming more and more widely understood. Uh, the, the challenge for us is to make, you know, it is to make another way of life thinkable and to demonstrate it so that more and more people can become invested in participating and making it a reality. And that, that is not going to be easier as, uh, as it, as it becomes harder and harder to hold a, a stable static space from which we can act, but it's, it's going to be necessary, you know, whether, whether you think of yourself as political or not, it's going to be necessary. And, and there are going to be moments when millions and millions of people are looking around for, for, uh, opportunities to, you know, for points of departure to a, a different way of life. And so that's why we have to, we have to invest ourselves right now, even if it's just a few of us, like the, like the beatniks in the 1940s, like the punks in the 1970s, we have to invest ourselves in 
collective processes of experimentation to produce uh, solutions to these emergencies, you know, to produce solutions to these problems that, that can be useful to the, the millions or even billions of people who are going to be facing them soon. That's, that's the argument for, uh, for people to understand revolution as a, as a possibility and perhaps even as an inevitability, although it is not inevitable that it will turn out for the best. That, that part is up to us. It's up to us to, to become familiar with our agency, to, to, to look to ourselves as protagonists of this historical moment and, uh, and, and to try to build the connections with each other through which we can act powerfully. That is really well said. The only thing I would add to it is that as much as, as we, you know, in our circles are trying to come up with ideas or other sort of methods for dealing with the way the world is inevitably changing and going to change, a lot of those people already facing those changes, catastrophic changes day by day, are developing the methods of survival. And that's part of what revolution looks like, I think, is that people collectively figuring out how to deal with monumental changes all at once. I think a problem that the, the left and, and revolutionaries often fall into is trying to theorize like what's going to happen and then what we do about it and just ignoring what's happening right in front of our eyes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like the people who, when they're going to read the news for the day they opened Das Kapital, you know, you, you need to be connected to the things that are going on. And, you know, and if you want to, if you think about, if you want to think about your, your brand of socialism as a scientific socialism, approach it like an actual scientist, you know, uh, come up with hypotheses, test them, and, and then reflect on what you've learned and, and share what you've learned with others, look to learn from what others are doing, you know? Um, and when I say we, I don't, I don't mean people who subscribe to a, a particular brand of, of like anarchist politics. I, I mean people who are confronting hardship by the millions. And, and at, you know, I'm, I'm an anarchist because I'm, I'm one of those people. Uh, and anarchism has consistently shown me the, you know, the most useful ways to try to work with others. Um, it's, it's not a, a set of answers, but it's a, it's a methodology for proceeding. All right. Thanks so much for uh, joining us and talking to us for so long. Anything else you want to say before we go? I would just say to everyone listening that the most important thing is what actions you can take, which may be more determinant than anything that either of us in this conversation are able to do from here. To, to change the world and and I am looking we are looking to you to solve whatever problems we are not able to solve you know and to and to continue forward all of these movements and all of these lines of inquiry that, that we've been discussing here. so I'm anybody who's still listening I'm grateful to you and, and I wish you luck and thank you